The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. Now back with me is one of the great journalists of our time and author, Chad Finn. Chad is a reporter for the Boston Globe. Going back to his college days, he studied journalism at the University of Maine, Orano, where he was the sports editor at the Maine campus. Chad's column can be found every day in the sports section of the Boston Globe, plus on boston.com. In fact, if you go to boston.com and you click on the sports link, Chad has his own link right there. It goes, Chad Finn, Red Sox, Celtics, Bruins, Patriots. Those are the links you're going to see. He was an Epi Award winner in 2012 and 2013 for sports bloggers. The Epi Award honors the best in digital media. He's been named a top 100 follow in sports by Sports Illustrated and voted one of the most popular sports writers in Boston. He's got a new book out titled The Story of the Red Sox, More Than a Century of Championships, Challenges, and Characters, where he has collected articles about the team from the last 120-plus years. And I couldn't be more honored that I get to have him back with me again today. Hey, Chad, thanks for coming back on the show. You bet, Chris. Great talking to you again. That was uh, it was quite an intro. It was like, uh, uh, what's my life or whatever that game show used to be called. <laughs> this go. is your life. Is that what it That's was? That's right. There you Dating go. myself with that one. <laughs> So, Chad, you know, I mean, I've got the book sitting here next to me. It's a fantastic read, a truly a complete history of the Red Sox franchise. You know, kind of going back conceptually, what made you want to go all the way back to the beginning and tell this story? Yeah, the idea came from our publisher, uh, Hatchet Books uh, in New York, is, uh, and uh, Black Dog and Leventhal is the imprint um, that, that handled this and they'd done a book for the Yankees back in 2012 uh, with the New York times, same premise um, telling the story of a legendary baseball franchise through the coverage of the most prominent media outlet in that market, which, uh, you know, the globe has globe's been around longer than the Red Sox have been. So they were covering them from the beginning and, you know, the times history with the Yankees is obviously uh decorated and accomplished so um publisher decided they want to do one for the red sox and reached out to the globe and the globe has been trying to do more with books and other media you know we have a tv show now on nessa and boston globe today things like that so um the the globe said hey yeah we'll do that and uh my editor asked me if i want to work on the project it would have been a Hard thing to do for one of the beat writers to do because they're, they're so immersed in the team every day. But a columnist like me uh, has a little bit more freedom uh, in terms of schedule. Uh, so I said, yeah, I mean, it's kind of my dream project to to dig through the Globe Archives and read Peter Gammons and Lee Monfil, Ray Fitzgerald, all these great writers that I grew up reading. Um, and uh, so started working on that back in December 2021. Is that what it was? This is 2023 and uh, finished it about nine months later and uh, just came out this April. So uh, a thrill to actually see the book come out because I've never done one before. And the the publisher did, did just such a great job of designing and putting it together. So it's a real thrill for me to work on this project. 
as you mentioned, it's a series of news articles about the team going way back when, the players, the team, that sort of thing. And when you were gathering all this information, reading through all of those columns, did anything like did anything jump out at you? Did you say to yourself, you know, man, I can't believe that actually happened? <laughs> but one of the pleasant surprises uh, was that we had everything we were looking for. You thought maybe along the way there would be a story um, where – uh, you hoped you had it, but you could maybe see the globe not covering a particular thing that day. Uh, one that jumped out to me was Jackie Robinson's sham workout at Fenway. I believe it was 1945. I always have to go back and check the year on things. But uh, the globe actually covered that, had a little story in on it, and we included it in the book. Um, the, a, a huge revelation was realizing how thoroughly the globe covered the Red Sox from the beginning. I mean, Peter Gammons in the seventies gets credit for inventing the Sunday baseball notes column, picks up a whole page and uh, you just immerse yourself in it. I, I grew, I was eight years old in 78 when I started following the Red Sox. And I remember vividly reading Peter's columns, uh, even from that age. Um, but then I realized putting this book together, the Globe had massive stories on the Red Sox, a national Sunday baseball column in like 1908. Uh, this writer named Tim, Tim Murnane, might be Murnane, I always mispronounce it, um, was a really terrific writer and uh, had great resources with the team and, and uh, just great insight uh, on the team and connections and uh, really covered the team like you, you didn't expect somebody to do back in those days and because the newspaper the only place people could really find out what was going on at that point in terms of media like world series game stories were three thousand words long back then it covered every bit of play-by-play uh and it was a, a a revelation and a pleasant surprise to see uh just how much detail went into the older stories because that was a history i really didn't know a lot about um one story in particular you asked uh was uh, a marine story on uh, Chick Stahl in 1907, uh, Red Sox legend. He was the manager at the time who committed suicide. And uh, obviously a huge, shocking story, huge font on the front page of the Globe. And uh, the reporter just got incredible detail on what happened because um, uh, Chick Stahl's roommate, Jimmy Collins, another Red Sox legend, talked to him about exactly what happened. So the detail of the, this Red Sox legend ending his life, uh, it, it was covered in uh, remarkable thoroughness in the globe by a reporter who had this great access to the team and the trust of the people with the team. So it's really cool to see that that was a part of everything from the beginning. Going back to the early 1900s, one of the many things that jumped out at me was an article for March 29, 1901, regarding Cy Young's loyalty to Boston's American League team. There were questions about his contract and where he would play, and he said he'd play in Boston or nowhere, and went on to say he had no respect for a contract jumper. When I've given my word to a man or to a club, the deal is closed. Talk about Cy Young, the two Boston teams that there were at the time, and his ill feelings towards the National League. Yeah, back in March 1901, I mean, there was an enormous disconnect between the National and American League uh, and American Leagues at that point because the National League had been essentially professional baseball, the highest level of pro professional baseball alone, and 
the American League uh, essentially came around in, in the or the beginning of the 1900s as a rival. And uh, the, the Braves owned Boston and you know, the Red Sox, they weren't called the Red Sox initially, um, were awarded a, a, as the challenger when this new league started up. And so it was uh, essential for the new league to get uh, big name players and, and uh, Cy Young not a bigger name than him at that point in time. And, and uh, for him to be with Boston and to have that loyalty to Boston was huge for the franchise that uh, it was known as the Americans then, but uh, became the Red Sox and uh, really helped get everything off the ground. And Ted, we all revere Ted Williams for his amazing career and what he meant to the franchise, but he didn't always have the adoration of Boston fans or especially the Boston media. There was issues with his contract and then things with World War II and being called to serve in the Navy, deferments he was given. There was some not-so-great moments back then. Talk about Williams' relationship with the team and the fans. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's something I wrote about in the opening to the book of the kind of the connective tissue. I wrote the intro siege chapters, and then each— um, the chapters are filled with the stories uh, that the writers told at the time. Uh, the intro to the book, I, I wrote and talked about Ted's relationship to the writers because it was the two things that really uh, were among the biggest uh, topics with with this book is is the media coverage because it's the Globe stories and how the team was covered and Ted, no no bigger name in Red Sox history than Ted Williams. You know, he had uh, Babe Ruth for a while. But his his greatest accomplishments obviously came with another franchise, and uh, I think David Ortiz, myself, is the most important player in Red Sox history because he was the guy who got the hit that nobody else could that came through in the clutch. But Ted Williams is the biggest star and, and legend the Red Sox have ever had, and it's funny putting together the book. You know, you expect all these stories of feuds with Globe reporters, but the feuds tended to be with. Reporters from other newspapers, uh, one reporter, Colonel Dave Egan, was one he battled with a lot. Uh, he had an issue with a reporter named Mel Webb for, from the Globe, who he thought uh, helped rob him of an MVP award one season. But it turned out that uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, but through history, you know, Ted actually wrote for the Globe for a while uh, in the uh, did a diary in the uh, 1946 World Series. Uh, so he has actually a gold bylines. So I would have liked to have included those, but uh, Ted content probably takes up more of the book than any other topic. And we could have had so much more. There was this uh, one series, I think it was an eight part series halfway through his career, synopsizing everything that had happened before. And it was tremendous. But if I would included it, it would have been redundant with the particular stories uh, that were written, you know, on the day of when these events happened. So it just didn't quite fit. But uh, so much great stuff on Ted through uh, through the years, uh, especially during his his playing days. Uh, people, he did few to the media, but he was also pretty accessible at times. And one of my favorite story in the stories in the book is uh, a Q and A with him early in his career, just uh, kind of almost a getting to know you thing, where he talks about his personal life a little bit, and um, just a great read because it takes you back to. To that point in time in Ted Williams's life and what it must have been like to to be a guy who's a, on his way to becoming one of the great stars in baseball history. One of the details that that I didn't know we all know about the 
the lone red seat in, in the right field bleachers on the 450-foot home run that he hit. And I didn't know that it actually hit that fan in the head, <laughs> bounced further up into the stands. He didn't get the baseball. Someone else gets the baseball, ends up getting treated by the dock at Fenway Park and goes back and enjoys the rest of the game. But that's a detail I didn't know. Yeah, we have a separate story on that. I guess uh, there must have been a sidebar writer that day at Fenway or the whoever was covering the game raced out to talk to the the poor guy. The ball went right through his straw hat, had a, <laughs> had a dent on his noggin from it, but uh, uh, ended up being a, a story that was never forgotten and uh, just part of Ted's legend, you know, to be able to hit a baseball that far and um, have it commemorated the way it is at Fenway. But uh, if anybody doubts that story, um, this right there in the book and the reporter at the time talked to uh, the, the man who's uh, took that one off the, off the old coconut. So uh, that really did happen. And uh, it was a, uh, a pretty amazing part of Red Sox lore. You talk about how clutch David Ortiz was, but prior to Ortiz and Carl Yastrzemski was about as clutch as, as the Red Sox had a great performance down the stretch, obviously in 67 felt the Red Sox win the, 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 the league that year I mean, wins the triple crown, but just goes on an absolute tear coming down the stretch to kind of carry the Red Sox to that title. Talk about what you learned about Yaz. Yeah. I mean, some of my favorite stories in the book are about Yaz, um, not necessarily from 67. And I think putting the book together, um, the publishers wanted to em- emphasize the more recent stuff, which I understand, you know, I agreed with, the 2004, the the four recent championships, really connects with the fans, uh, and uh, you know not just a younger demographic of fans, but you know it's, it's older fans who cherish that stuff as well. That waited a lifetime to see the 04 Red Sox win, uh, but second to that, I think 1967 is is as important as it gets, and the stuff that probably would appeal to somebody who might consider buying this book. And we put a ton in from there. And of course, a lot of it is about Yaz because he put that team on his back all summer and right down the stretch when uh, you couldn't get him out the last couple of days of the season. Um, It was funny. You look back, Chris, and 67 and 75, uh, the Red Sox didn't win the World Series, but there are stories in the book. I think they're both included in the book. I know they were at, at one point, and uh, I think I have them both in there. Um, hard to remember sometimes. Uh, talking about how um, how great those seasons were after they ended. And no, we didn't win, but God, that was fun. And we don't write those kind of stories anymore when a Boston team loses. But back then, uh, you know, 50 50 years ago, uh, 1967, you know, it was even longer than that. Now, uh, what, 56 years ago, um, it's uh, it, even to get there and to to be so competitive and give all those great memories along the way really meant a lot. And that that what that's what uh, really made Red Sox Nation what it is now. The Sox didn't have a lot of interest in the early 60s. Yaz came up after Ted retired and was... Uh, pretty great, but not a lot of uh, star power otherwise. And uh, Fenway wasn't a huge draw. And then 67 and the magic of all that happened and uh, hasn't been the same. Boston's been a baseball town ever since. But I mentioned the beginning of this long diatribe of mine, but uh, two of my favorite stories in the book being, yes, uh, Peter Gammons' Game 6 story, 1975 World Series. That was, uh, you know, fist kit in the home run, but yes, was prominent in that. Uh, 
and the ones I liked even better were 79 when Yaz gets his three set 3,000th hit against the Yankees after, um, you know, being a little bit of a slump before it came around. And then one of the real gems in the book is, is Gammon's story at the end of the 1983 season when Yaz retired. And basically, Peter just followed him around the ballpark after the game ended and wrote about what he saw. And it's a, it's a beautiful piece. And really helps you realize how much Boston meant to Yaz. It wasn't just Yaz uh, meaning a lot to Red Sox fans that was reciprocated. So that if I had to rank the stories in the, in the book, that 83 Yaz piece would be in the top 10 for sure. The Red Sox have obviously made some dubious trades over the course of their history. <laughs> we won't even talk about the, the Ruth trade because as, as a superstitious Red Sox fan, I don't want to talk about it. Um, but the article by Ray Fitzgerald from November 14th, 1978, he talks about how the, the Red Sox lack a sense of history and have developed the business of alienating fans into an art form. And they've done it several times during my lifetime, particularly trading away Cecil Cooper, Fred Lynn, Jeff Bagwell, letting Louis Tiant sign with the Yankees in 79, obviously Fisk getting away to the White Sox. Talk about the, the things you learned about uh, how those things ended up going down. Yeah, it's funny. I almost left the Bagwell story out of the book. It was <laughs> a couple of times uh, going through it where I realized, uh, uh, uh-oh, there's something missing here. Um, you know, we start the book. The book has uh, over 300 articles in it. It's 432 pages. Initially, the editors wanted the book to be about 225 articles. So um, when we pulled everything from the library, it's about 400 to begin with. So we had to make cuts. And somewhere along the way, I accidentally cut that Bagwell story out. Fortunately, I remembered. Uh, <laughs> but um, that was obviously crushing. And I, I love that Nick Cafardo, the, the late Nick Cafardo, who I worked with and is just a cherished colleague, um, hated the trade from the beginning. And it's clear in his story he, that he did not like them trading Bagwell. Uh, for Larry Anderson, the Astros middle reliever, who's pretty good in 90, but he left uh, left after that season as a free agent. Um, there's a lot in here. You know, my own, my own biases came into this a little bit. I mean, I grew up, as I said, uh, you know, became a fan in 78. And, uh, those late 70s, early 80s teams were the ones that I loved the most. And so I've got a lot in here about Fred Lynn and uh, how it fell apart with Lynn and Fisk and, um, uh, Haywood Sullivan, who's the general manager at that point in time, breaking up that team maybe prematurely and, and failing to send Fisk a contract by the deadline, which allowed him to become a free agent after the 1980 season. And they lost him to the White Sox. Uh, just uh, some really frustrating developments along the way. You, you mentioned Ray Fitzgerald, too. Uh, another story I would put in my top 10 and maybe my top five. Uh, would be his column in 1979 after the 78 season when Tion signed with the Yankees, where at the end of it, he mentions um, that, uh, you know, it's all about his frustration with the Red Sox allowing that to happen. And then at the end of the end of the story, uh, he writes, uh, I'm going to go stick my head in an oven now or something, <laughs> something along those lines, <laughs> which is how we all felt, you know, seeing Louis go to the Yankees. So, um the, some of the best writing is in the book is about some of the most disappointing things to happen. Chad, few players have gone from heroes to villains in Red Sox history the way Roger Clemens, Wade Boggs, and Johnny Damon did. All dared to go from Boston to putting on a Yankees uniform. All three are dead to me. How much damage was done to their legacies with what happened after they left Boston? Yeah, Clemens, I mean... 
it's damaged for him for sure. I mean, there's a lot of things that damage his legacy. When he left the Red Sox, we were sure he was going to the Hall of Fame, and he's not yet. So, uh, so obviously, some some things interfered with that. Some decisions that, that he made. Um, and he was a total hypocrite about going to the Yankees, you know, just as he was when he signed with the Blue Jays and said he wanted to do it because his wife liked the shopping or he wanted to be closer to Texas or, well, you know, obviously geography was one of the things he wasn't great at. Um, Damon, I don't have a problem with. Uh, I know a lot of people do and still do, but when I think of him, I think of Game 7 in 2004 and Grand Slam and two home runs and seven RBIs. And uh, I'm okay with him going to the Yankees, especially because the Red Sox really didn't want it back. It's uh, it's kind of similar to what you saw with Xander Bogarts this offseason, where they sort of pretended they wanted to keep the guy, but never made an offer that they knew he was going to accept. Uh, and then the Yankees got into the picture, Scott Boris's agent to entice the Yankees. And, um, you know, Damon was frustrated at that point. The Yankees made him a great offer, and he took it. Uh, but when I think of him, I don't think of him in pinstripes. I think of him as, uh, you know, ending an 86-year-old uh, drought. Chad, it's crazy for me to think that 2004 is 19 years ago. But looking back, did they win that World Series if they don't trade Nomar? Uh, it depends how good you think Ricky Gutierrez would have been at shortstop the rest of the year. I mean, um, no, that that's a no. They had to do it. And, I, again, I love Nomar. He's on the back cover of the book, Facing Clemens. Uh, but then um, I'll argue with anybody that he was better than Jeter. And you can put an asterisk uh, for seven years on that if you want. But I'll I'll, I'll, I'll fight that fight forever. <laughs> but um, he couldn't really move. And beyond that, he was miserable. Uh, you know, he had the heel issue. There was some question about how serious it was. He did co-play for the Cubs. Uh, pretty consistently after the deal, but um, it was just time for it to be over. Uh, he, he, he couldn't be trusted to stay healthy. Uh, he was still productive as heck, but um, guy was miserable on a team that should have been pretty happy with, with the way their roster was constructed and the way the opportunities they had that year. So they had to do it. And then you bring in Cabrera, who's just this jolt of energy, this, uh, you know, caffeinated player uh, who, uh, played a tremendous shortstop. I loved one of the things I liked about him and Mike Lowell always did it too. Every throw they made the first base was a strike. No matter how close it was, no matter how they had to rush it, they hit the guy right, hit the first baseman right in the chest um, and, and gave them that defensive stability. And of course, I uh, got Doug McKavich who uh, was defensive replacement from Alar and helpful piece off the bench. And uh, same day, Dave Roberts came here. And from what I gather, he stole an important base or two. So uh, <laughs> pretty big day, you know, everybody's sad to see Nomar go, but um, it was very bold of Theo Epstein to make that trade. And it turned out to be the right thing. Why did Cabrera not come back? Good question. Um, I, I, you know, there's always rumors of, uh, you know, sort of some personal stuff that they were worried about. I don't know how true that was, uh, but I think the bigger thing was that they thought Edgar Renteria was a better player. And to that point, he was. I mean, he was a more productive offensive player. He was a gold gold glove caliber shortstop. Uh, he got to the Red Sox, and he was pretty miserable. Uh, hated the infield at Fenway. He had slowed down a little bit. Um, still scored 100 runs for the Sox. Tells you the, the quality of the lineup they had, but uh, just didn't seem to fit the market the way that, that Cabrera did, didn't embrace the, um, you know, 
the the pressure, I guess, of playing in Boston, where everything you do every day is going to be discussed and in the newspapers and talked about on sports radio and uh, fans are very informed and very opinionated. And that just wasn't, wasn't quite the right fit for him coming here from St. Louis. I remember when he, when Renteria signed, um, I remember two, two instances uh, in baseball history where uh, people met ex-manager, well, Red Sox history where ex-managers said, I don't know if he's going to be able to play in that market. And it was Renteria after the 04 season. Yeah, with Tony LaRusso saying that. And then Joe Madden said it about Carl Crawford. And both of those guys were busts here. So uh, I don't know. If you're planning on stealing a big ticket free agent to come play to Boston, maybe you should ask their ex-manager first if it's going to work. <laughs> that miracle comeback versus the Yankees and the ALCS, those four days in October, if you will. What was it like for you? Because those were the four longest days of my life. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it's funny. I was really angry because not because of the way the Red Sox were playing, um, but I didn't have an outlet to write. <laughs> and I had been, um, I'd been, I'd worked in Concord, New Hampshire for nine years and been uh, a columnist there and covered the 03 playoffs and, um, you know, got to, got to weigh in when interesting things happen. And they certainly did with the Red Sox in those days. Uh, and 04, I, uh, in December 2003, I took my job at the Globe, and um, I was an editor and uh, helping put the newspaper together every day, and I wasn't writing anymore. And I'm not writing for the first time in, since I was in college, so like 13 years at that point. And lo and behold, the Red Sox won the World Series, and I was so bummed out. I wanted to write about it. And so what I did was I started a blog, uh, which were uh, you know, the thing in those days. And uh, end up being one of the best decisions I ever made because uh, got a little bit of readership. You know, some people knew me from my previous job and Reddit and uh, some some other websites in Boston. Boston Sports Media Watch picked up on it and would post my columns and things like that. And Sons of Sam Horn. And um, when the internet kind of blew up, where all the all these. Uh, TV stations, radio stations, other newspapers in Boston were deciding to invest in the web. Um, I was in a good position because uh, I the, the Globe had looked at me and said, uh, oh, you have a blog already. Um, I guess we'll move you to the website. And so they moved me over in 2009 to write. And uh, I was grateful for that because I ended up getting on the track where I am now or, uh, you know, end up uh, being a general columnist and covering sports media. So Oh four, I was crushed about the Red Sox and not having an outlet uh, to write about them, but um, it ended up being uh, incredibly fortunate for me that I was so furious that the Red Sox won and I never way to write about it that I started something that ended up leading to the career I have now. Is Theo Epstein the greatest GM in the history of GM? He might be the greatest executive in baseball history, given the degree of difficulty nowadays. Uh, all the things you have to deal with, the analytics, the salaries, um, the, you know, you're getting players from all over the world, uh, just uh, so many variables in putting together a baseball team now. And he did it with the 04 Red Sox, which is probably enough to get him into the Hall of Fame. Won again with the Red Sox in 07, won with the Cubs in 16, makes him a Hall of Fame lock. And now he's working for the commissioner's office and has implemented a, a lot of rules that have made baseball much more uh, of an appealing product that made it the, the pitch clock and some of the other changes have 
uh, turn back the clock a little bit to make the game seem like uh, it was when I was growing up where guys stole bases and not every team was the same and it was didn't turn into a home run derby uh, and the games are much quicker. So uh, I think in terms of all the things Theo Epstein has done and he's still a relatively young man, um, I don't know if there are many executives that have had better careers than he has. Why did he have to leave Boston? Uh, well, that 11 season went to hell. Um, you know, it, it just, uh, I think he was burned out. You remember he left once before the, the famous gorilla suit what was that 2006, 2005. Um, those years kind of blur together. Uh, it was 2005, right? Yeah. 2005, uh, he left and, uh, Lakino made the deal that brought Josh Beckett here and, gave up Hanley Ramirez after that season. Um, but he, he was burned out early uh, with the pressure of putting together a team in Boston. And um, I think by 2011, the way that team collapsed in September and the changes that were obviously going to come, you know, JD, uh, Jason Veritek retired uh, Wakefield. Uh, it was his final year. Uh, JD Drew's contract ran out. Um, you know, they had guys on the team that, uh, were great in the clubhouse that they ended up moving on in the Dodgers deal. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez was kind of a negative presence. And I think all those things just combined to uh, burn Theo out. And same thing happened to Francona that year. It was just, uh, it was just time as great as they both were at their jobs. Chad, just a couple more before I let you go. Mookie Betts is a once in a generation kind of player from when, when he came up with the Red Sox, huge star power with what they got from him. You wrote about them parting with greatness when they traded him. Nothing good came from that trade on the Red Sox side, though there's still a little bit of hope for Connor Wong. Why'd they make that deal? Not the official version, but in your opinion and, and the things that you've written about and read about, why did that deal have to happen? Yeah, I mean, it, it, their logic on it, uh, I mean, it makes sense as much as it sucks, you know, that they had so many bad contracts. The Chris Sale contract really hamstrung them. Um, they had just given Avaldi an extension and didn't know, uh, you know, didn't know if he was going to be healthy going forward. He had some injury problems. Uh, basically, Dave Dombrowski kept the entire band together after they won the 2018 World Series, and it backfired a little bit. And with Mookie's free agency coming up and him seeking, uh, seeking uh, to be if the highest paid, if not one of the highest paid, if not the highest paid player in baseball. They just uh, they thought they were going to get slaughtered by the, the luxury tax threshold and wouldn't be able to move some of the contracts on their roster. Uh, and so they made the, the brutal decision to trade him. Um, I think they made a couple of mistakes there. And first of all, don't ever believe people who say, well, he wasn't going to stay anyway. That's what the Red Sox wanted you to believe. It's not true. He was looking for a house here uh, as free agency was approaching. Um he requested $420 million uh, after they offered him 300. They never got back to him. They never raised their offer. That was the end of it. Uh, so they made the decision, not Mookie Betts. He, he, he would have been a Red Sox long-term uh, if they were willing to pay him top market value. Uh, one of the frustrating things to that too is it, it was unfortunate timing, but they traded him before the 2020 season. Um as which would have been his free agent year and COVID hit Buki takes a look at the free agent market when he gets to Dodgers and decides to sign for a little bit less knowing that teams probably weren't going to have 
a ton of money to spend in free agency and that is you know the world was a mess and his his timing for that was a very small thing in that scope but his timing was bad to go to free agency because of uh, what everybody was dealing with so he signed with the Dodgers and had the Red Sox not made that trade uh, he may have signed for less to stay here, but they just didn't want to pay him more than 300 million bucks. So it's not a brutal trade. I mean, Verdugo's uh, had a nice first half this year. He may, maybe he'll be an all-star. Who knows? Wong looks like a keeper, a uh, terrific defensive catcher, at least with a little bit of pop, but um, Smooky Betts, it's the kind of guy who, when we were growing up would have been with the Red Sox for life, like uh, Yaz or Jim Rice or somebody like that. So um I wish him well with the Dodgers, but I wish we got to watch him here for his whole career. The book ends with a statement from Alex Fear that Rafael Devers is a capable guy of carrying this team. Not off to a great start this year, but I, <laughs> but I think we know that he could. Um, your thoughts on on Devers, his ability to be the guy that uh, that takes up the torch that maybe Mookie Betts would have had, and then where this team goes the rest of this season. Yeah, well, he's getting paid to be that guy now, right? I mean, um, you know, signed the, the three hundred plus million dollar contract before the season, so he's he's paid like a franchise guy. Um, I think he will be. I mean, he's a, just a tremendous offensive talent. Has worked hard on his game through the years. He's just twenty six years old, uh, but he's having a weird season. He's swinging at everything. His on base percentage is below three hundred. You know, he's got got a bunch of home runs but a bunch of rbis i think he's around 50 rbis now 13 home runs but um not not the uh the on base and batting average and uh even the slugging really that they expected he's been just a little bit above average this year as an offensive player and they're they're expecting him to be elite so my thinking is he's probably gonna have a wicked hot stretch coming up here pretty soon because that's how he is so he goes through these periods where it doesn't look like uh you know the reincarnation of uh, the Walter Johnson could get him out. So um, I imagine he'll, he'll get going here, but it's been a little bit jarring to see him get off to such a slow start a third of the way through the season. Overall, the Sox, I think they're right where I expected them to be, which is a little bit better than 500. I think they're on pace for 84 wins, uh, you know, two games over 500 right now, a third of the way through the season. Um, being the, Play meaningful games in September, be in the wild card mix because you got three wild card teams now, maybe sneak into that seventh one, but not a true contender. They're still building up uh, to, to being that, but they could be pretty interesting as the season goes on, especially if Adam Duvall comes back soon. He's, he's rehabbing, uh, I believe, in Pawtucket tonight uh, and, and hits uh, uh, pretty well the rest of the season, gives them some pop. And Trevor Story comes back a little later and takes over at shortstop, which has been a disaster with Kike Hernandez. Uh, if they do that, uh, they could be uh, they could be in the mix to make the postseason, and they'll they'll play games we care about late in the year, which is uh, more than you could say at this season. Todd, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. Read your articles, get a copy of this book, and also <laughs> follow you on social media. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter um, at Globe Chat Finn um, on there, making wise guy comments all the time. Uh, you can get the book, uh, Boston Globe story, the Red Sox, which is just, uh, the best stories, uh, 300, uh, more, uh, more than 300 stories of globe coverage of the Sox through their entire history. 
Uh, and uh, I write three or four columns a week uh, for Boston Globe and uh, Boston.com as well. So you can, uh, can find me pretty easily there online or in print. Pat, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and, and join me again today. Always a privilege to get to spend time with you and get your insights and hear your stories. Thank you so much. Hope we get the privilege of doing it again soon. Oh, yeah, Chris, anytime. It's always great talking to you. Take care, Chad. All the best you and your family. We'll catch up soon. All right, man. Take care. See you, Chad. That is the great Chad Finn, folks. At Globe, Chad Finn is where you can find him on social media. A better writer, a better person, and a better Red Sox historian you will not find. Chad is just one of the all-time greats. He's been a great friend of the show for many years. Can't thank him enough for all of his support over the years and coming back and sharing his insights and his content with us over the years. Fantastic guy, and this is a spectacular book. If you are a Red Sox fan, you have got to own and read this book. You're going to learn so much from cover to cover about the history of this franchise. Chad is such a great writer. He's, he makes everything in it so interesting. Again, a page turn. Chad takes all of these old articles from the Boston Globe and turns them into such great stories. The Boston Globe, story of the Red Sox, more than a century of championship, challenges, and characters from our good friend Chad Finn and a forward by Dennis Eckersley. Go out and pick it up. You're going to love it. All right, my friends, it is time to put a bow on this special segment of the show. Again, thanks to Chad Finn for joining me. Folks, I can't thank you enough for continuing to make Next on the Tee a part of your regular golf and sport content. You can find the show on just about every major podcast app. And again, our thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making Next on the Tee one of their featured podcasts on their site. Download their app, stream this show, and all of your favorite podcasts right there on their app. Folks, thank you again for taking the journey with me on this special segment of the show. Until next time, hit them straight, my friends. team in baseball also has the most saves and people who save the most money are winners so start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only ten dollars each these bonds earn a fixed seven percent apy and there's no fees penalties or minimum balance required and they can be redeemed whenever you like 
You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save. And save and win. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC.